Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. From The Recount, I'm Rena Ninen, and you're listening to The Recount Daily Pod. Today's Monday, August 2nd. And my my biggest concern is that Afghanistan turns into, uh, once again, a magnet for foreign terrorist fighters to flock not only from the region, but from further afield. That's Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Group, speaking about the terrorist threat in the wake of the U.S. pullout in Afghanistan and now in Iraq. We'll get into that a little bit later, but first, your morning headlines. Florida reported more than 21,000 new corona cases on Friday. That's the highest number since the start of the pandemic. This epicenter of the U.S. outbreak is now responsible for one in five cases nationally. As of Sunday, Florida is 49% fully vaccinated. Dr. Anthony Fauci spoke on ABC's This Week about the severity of the recent spike and on the chance of another lockdown. So we're looking not, I believe, to lockdown, but we're looking to some pain and suffering in the future because we're seeing the cases go up. The solution to this is get vaccinated, and this would not be happening. Fauci calls this an outbreak of the unvaccinated. A hundred million people in the United States are not vaccinated. Saturday marked the end of the foreclosure moratorium, which banned banks from foreclosing homes during the pandemic. An estimated 1.75 million households, or about 3.5 percent of all U.S. homeowners, are in some sort of forbearance plan. That's a provision that allowed monthly mortgage payments to be deferred, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. Banks might be slower to react to the change, with housing prices across the country increasing Restructuring loans might be a better option for banks and lenders. In most cases, there will be forced sales rather than foreclosures. That's according to mortgage industry analytics firm Black Knight. While the White House last week announced a series of measures to help prevent foreclosures, Congress has been trying to push banks to provide some private relief. Congress publicly asked the CEOs of six major banks earlier this summer what they plan to do when the moratorium ends. All of the CEOs said they plan to continue providing relief through forbearance agreements. The union representing the world's biggest copper mine, La Escondida, in Chile, voted to reject the most recent contract offer and will go on strike in 10 days. 
This strike could have major implications, risking disruption to a key metal used in everything from wiring, motors, and construction. The most recent contract offered no advances in the union's requests for a one-time bonus for workers who kept the mine operating during the pandemic. Also missing was performance-linked compensation, an improved career development program, and for the children of workers to have the same educational benefits as the children of supervisors. The last time workers walked out was in 2017. They didn't return for 44 days. And now to our daily deep dive. As U.S. and NATO troops in Afghanistan withdraw, the risk that al-Qaeda will have the room to reconstitute and strike U.S. interests, either in the region or at home, has risen exponentially. Should we be worried? Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Group, helps us dig into it. Colin, welcome. Thanks for having me. So what was the U.S. trying to accomplish in Afghanistan? Well, I think we've never actually had a coherent strategy from day one. That's been part of our problem. After being attacked on 9-11, the initial impetus was to destroy and dismantle al-Qaeda. That happened relatively quickly, at least in terms of destroying al-Qaeda's infrastructure in Afghanistan, pushing its remaining fighters across the border into Pakistan. And I think at that point, we were kind of looking around for targets to strike. And the mission quickly morphed into defeating the Taliban, which is, as you know, different than al-Qaeda. The Taliban are Afghans, they're ethnic Pashtuns, and really a significant portion of of the country. So to, to say that we were going to defeat the Taliban, move the goalposts back, and totally changed the mission, which had been, at least in the early stages, focused on al-Qaeda. You know, the war in Afghanistan has been going on for almost 20 years. It's killed 2,200 Americans, 38,000 Afghanis. It's cost the U.S. taxpayer nearly a trillion dollars. President Biden announced, you know, the troops will be gone by August 31st. Was it worth it? It depends who you ask. It's a really tough question. If you fought over there, and watched your friends die, you might have one perspective. I'm a lifelong civilian, although I did spend time in a deployed environment in Kabul, uh, working for General McMaster when he was a one-star. I remember coming home after being in Afghanistan for several months, and two weeks later, Osama bin Laden was killed. And I remember being pretty optimistic that things were going in the right direction. Ten years later, I can say that I no longer feel optimistic. In fact, I'm very concerned about what's going to happen in the immediate aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal. You know, I spent time in Iraq as a journalist after the U.S. invasion. And one of the great difficulties I've noticed is there's a great deal of investment on behalf of U.S. and coalition partners to get their troops to stand up. And the moment you start to pull away, it's like everything falls apart. doesn't matter how many years, how many dollars of investment. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, people have different theories. Is it the will to fight? the lack of confidence that comes with not having a superior military kind of be your eyes and ears and have your back? Is it the surprise that's generated from the quick rise of a group like the Islamic State that just comes and overpowers, as we saw with the Iraqis, and now unfortunately we're seeing with the Afghan National Security Forces? I think there's a range of factors that go into it, although I will say looking at Afghanistan in late 2021 or mid-2021 does you know, bring back memories of the U.S. troop withdrawal from Iraq, which was then, as it is in Afghanistan now, a calendar-based withdrawal, not a conditions-based withdrawal. What do you think is going to happen in Afghanistan with the withdrawal? Do you see all the gains lost after the pullout now? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think what we're likely to end up with is the Taliban running a significant portion of the country because the Taliban's never broken from Al-Qaeda. In fact, has never even pretended to. Al-Qaeda is going to have operational space to regrow its networks. I think the Islamic State uh, is going to do the same. And my, my biggest concern is that Afghanistan turns into, uh, once again, <laughs> a magnet for foreign terrorist fighters to flock not only from the region, but from further afield, including from the West. And we start seeing a replay of the mobilization we saw to Syria in 2011, 2012, 2013, et cetera. That's my big concern, is that this devolves into a hub for uh, Sunni jihadist fighters and, and foreign fighters. The U.S.-backed government of Afghanistan now only controls about 20% of territory. This is according to the Long War Journal. Do you believe U.S. intervention in Afghanistan was a failure? I think it's hard to point to any other outcome. I mean, you know, the United States has not achieved its mission. The U.S. has not destroyed al-Qaeda. It's significantly hampered al-Qaeda. It's disrupted al-Qaeda's networks. But now we're spiking the ball at the five-yard five line, to use a football analogy. We haven't completed the mission, and that's going to give al-Qaeda the breathing room it needs to resuscitate what have been kind of dormant networks to recruit, to spread propaganda, and in the worst case scenario, to rebuild external operations planning networks that could strike into the heart of the West, that we could end up seeing terrorist attacks planned from Afghanistan that occur on European, US, or other Western soil. And I think that's the, the nightmare scenario that a lot of people are thinking about. And I would just say, you know, outside of Afghanistan, there are two main reasons why I think the U.S. was unable to achieve its objectives. The first is Pakistan. We've never been able to figure out how to get the Pakistanis to deny sanctuary and safe haven to groups like the Taliban, uh, Al-Qaeda, and, and other jihadists. The second is very early on in the conflict in Afghanistan, we turned and pivoted to Iraq, and, and a significant amount of resources and, and bandwidth were devoted to that conflict. And so, you know, in the early stages, we were distracted. That allowed the Taliban to kind of resurge, and we've never been able to kind of get our arms around how to deal with that since. What do you say to people who say, we can't be there for decades and decades and decades? We've been there for 20 years. Isn't that enough? I'd like to know what those people think about U.S. troops in Germany, Japan, and South Korea. We've been there for even far longer, and I don't hear people getting bent out of shape that we need to bring U.S. troops home from Germany. They're there for a reason, logistical and, and deterrence-wise. So I don't see why Afghanistan is any different, particularly when there's an active threat. We have an active threat in al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and we're withdrawing. I see the withdrawal as a way for President Biden, who I've been very supportive of, for him to score domestic political points by saying he ended an endless war. Outside of that, I don't see what it accomplishes. Should we rethink boots on the ground in countries like Germany or Japan? I don't know. I think that I'm a big believer in uh, a strong America as being uh, a force for good in the world. Yes, we've made a lot of missteps, uh, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, but U.S. force posture in precarious regions, in fragile states, near ungoverned territories, on these fault lines that exist in the world, having a U.S. military presence there is a good thing. It's, it reassures our allies and it deters our adversaries. I'm very concerned about what happens when we pull back from all these places 
and things start falling apart, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to then reinsert forces back to these same places. You've been watching this region for a very long time. What do you see happening in the next couple of years? I think Afghanistan's going to descend into all-out civil war. I think it's going to have spillover effects to countries on Afghanistan's borders. I think it's going to bring in regional powers that are all going to sponsor their own proxies and patrons. It's going to really destabilize the the region more broadly and could very well lead to more acts of international terrorism. But that's where I see this going. We've got to take a short break, but we're going to be back with Colin Clark on the Recount Daily Pod. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Welcome back to the Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio. We're here with Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Group. I want to ask you a little bit about intelligence gathering. While there have been boots on the ground for 20 years, the CIA had a role in Afghanistan for more than 30 years, dating back to aiding rebels, fighting the Soviet Union from 1979 to 1989. What do you think this means for U.S. intelligence gathering? And what do you think the CIA has learned about intelligence gathering over those 30 years? It, it makes it much more difficult to collect, to run human sources, signals intelligence, human intelligence, all the things that we rely on to keep Americans safe, I think that becomes far more challenging, whether we're running CT ops from across the border in Pakistan or somewhere else in Central Asia, it's almost like fighting with one hand tied behind your back. I think what the CIA has learned is you need a presence on the ground to maintain robust intelligence, and now we'll be without that. What's the biggest lesson learned from Afghanistan? Was it worth the American blood and the money that was poured into it? I think the biggest lesson is to not get distracted from your objective. If you go into a conflict saying it's to destroy this transnational terrorist network, do that and don't leave until you do it. You can make the argument that the invasion of Iraq was maybe the worst U.S. foreign policy decision of all time, frankly. It took our eye off Afghanistan and it essentially created AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which then went on to become ISIS. That wasn't there before. And Saddam wasn't a good guy by any stretch. But if you look at the state of the Middle East right now, where you've got active Al-Qaeda and Islamic State affiliate and branches in the Levant and the Arabian Peninsula all over the region, and you've got this kind of sectarian conflict between the Saudis and the Iranians, you know, the Middle East is in worse shape than it was 20 years ago. And I think for those of us who have studied all the, the structural factors that led to 9-11, that's a scary thought. 
President Biden has announced that U.S. combat troops will pull out of Iraq by the end of this year. Forces have been there for almost 20 years now. There are reports that ISIS has regrouped. It's also reclaiming territory. What's your biggest concern with the pullout in Iraq? Uh, my biggest concern is, again, ISIS being able to put together some kind of capability to successfully execute external operations in the West. We saw what happened in November 2015 in Paris, in March 2016 in Brussels, in many other places around the world where ISIS tentacles have reached from Sri Lanka to Egypt to the United States. And my concern is that by taking pressure off of these groups and giving them the room to maneuver, that we allow them to rebuild their capability and then end up having to go back and, and fight again instead of finishing the job in the first place. And this isn't something that's easy. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, but I do think it's critical to U.S. national security. What does the terrorism fight look like for the rest of the world right now? Northern Africa, Europe, elsewhere. What's your biggest concern? Well, what I've been monitoring most closely is the growth of Al-Qaeda and IS affiliates in sub-Saharan Africa, from the Sahel in Western Africa, across to the Horn in the east, all the way down to the southeastern Swahili coast in Mozambique, and even in Central Africa in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're seeing a real growth and proliferation of jihadi groups. The op-tempo of attacks has spiked significantly. And in and around the Lake Chad region, we've seen uh, Islamic State affiliates moving pretty close to a model that looks something like governing territory again. Uh, and if that happens, you know, it has this galvanizing effect of bringing fighters from other countries to act as force multipliers and join this organization. Remember, success is sexy. When groups are perceived to have momentum, it brings in other fighters overnight you could have the size of these groups increasing significantly. How likely do you believe an attack is on U.S. or European soil in the coming months or years? The threat's more diverse today in 2021 than it's been in the last two decades. If, there's a th if there is an attack on U.S. soil or on European soil, it may not be from a jihadi group. It could well be from a far-right extremist group. It could be from any other number of individuals or groups motivated by all the ideologies we see today, uh, you know, left-wing, incel, there's so many different threads out there right now that I think it's a real challenge to policymakers and to counterterrorism analysts who have been almost exclusively focused on Salafi jihadi groups for the last 20 years. That's now changed. Nothing has uh, fallen off the plate. Those threats remain. We just have other threats on top of those to consider. So, you know, and then I layer on top of that the COVID-19 pandemic which I think is a real wild card. But I do think it was a boon for recruitment for terrorist groups of all kinds as everyone was home, spending a lot of time online, and in some cases, really imbibing significant amounts of terrorist propaganda. What does the next American terrorist look like? I think that's the hard part. There's no typology. There is no next American terrorist. It's people that look like me, people, right? Like, uh, right now, if you look at the main threat, it's domestic. It's folks that are far-right extremists. It could be QAnon adherents. It could be racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, people that want to create a white ethno state in the United States. It could be a jihadi attack, uh, whether a homegrown violent extremist or someone from overseas. 
as we saw in Pensacola in, in late 2019, where we had an Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula-linked attack carried out by uh, a Saudi Air Force Lieutenant, Mohammed al-Shamrani. It, it could be from anywhere. And I think that's, again, what makes counterterrorism at this moment so difficult is the threat's not easy to categorize. So it's really, it's not a good place to be right now, I think, in 2021 in terms of the counterterrorism landscape. I hope I'm wrong. I try to be sober in my assessments. I hope that the way that I'm envisioning things playing out doesn't happen and doesn't come to fruition. But there's so many uncertainties right now that it definitely leaves me highly concerned. Colin, before you go, it's been almost 20 years since 9-11. Is there anything that you can point to was a success in the war on terrorism? The way that the United States has worked with its allies in, in Europe, its Five Eye allies, the, the Australians, Canadians, Kiwis, and others, I think intelligence sharing and cooperation, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. And so we were forced to reassess those relationships and to put some skin in the game and, and to work with our partners overseas to make sure that 9-11 didn't happen again. We've actually been successful at building a worldwide counterterrorism infrastructure that by and large has kept Americans safe. Colin Clark, Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Group. Colin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And now to the look ahead. Here's what else we're watching today. An investment ban on Chinese companies goes into effect today. 59 Chinese companies with alleged links to the Chinese military are affected after the expanded order included surveillance companies. The new order was signed by President Joe Biden back in June and expands on a previous order signed by former President Donald Trump. The purpose of the ban is to stop the flow of capital to defense and technology companies that undermine the security of the U.S. Telecommunications group Huawei, one of the companies banned, was accused of working with the Chinese government to spy on its users. Today marks the second anniversary of women in Saudi Arabia being able to drive without permission from a male guardian. Other changes included allowing women to apply for passports and register a marriage, divorce, or child's birth. The new rules also stipulate that a father or mother can be legal guardians of children. While those are big steps for women in Saudi Arabia, there's still a lot of work to be done. Male consent is still required for women to leave prison, exit a domestic abuse shelter, or marry. Women still cannot pass on citizenship to their children or provide consent for their children to marry. Have a great Monday. I'll see you back tomorrow morning. This is the Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio. Our thanks to Colin Clark for being on the show. If you like this episode, I hope you'll subscribe to the Recount Daily Pod and leave us a rating on the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Rena Nainan. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights. Speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, and when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app.